0: Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight, and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. I'm Alison Humphreys. Thank you for joining us again. And we've been tracking tools and techniques that could really make a difference to your business in the current economic climate. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Overend of Ascentis LLP. So the last podcast, I was chatting with Mark's colleague, John Audie. And Mark, you're the tax partner at Ascentis. And you've joined there originally from Deloitte, having spent some time in the mortgage advice industry. Um, But now you specialize purely in giving specialist tax advice. So I'm sure lots of our listeners are going to be very interested to hear what you have to say. And outside of work, Mark, I think you're a bit of a runner, aren't you? I am, yes. Okay. So how good are you? You mentioned you'd done a, a half marathon recently. What was your time?
2: Uh it was one hour fifty, so I suppose I'm I'm midfield, I guess. I'm not I'm not flying around at the front of the pack, but I try not to, to be to be right at the back.
1: Listen, I take my hat off to anyone who can do a half marathon. I started doing one of these couch to 5K programs at the beginning of lockdown and I was so pleased with myself. I was so pleased with myself that 10 weeks in, I gave myself a stress fracture and all of my good work has been undone ever since, <laughs> as I've been completely unable to do any exercise since then. So well done to you for getting that far. So what we're going to talk about today for the benefit of our listeners is basically breaks down into three sections. One is a a general what all recruitment business owners should have considered and put in place if it's appropriate. Part two will focus on those business owners who sadly because of the nature of the virus and the sectors that that they have recruited in have been really badly hit so there are going to be some let's call it tax tidy ups that mark i know you want to talk about there some more defensive actions if you will And then in the final section, we will focus on those businesses who have either been lucky enough to be in a very buoyant sector or are looking to diversify and grow with a program of investment and the kind of things that that they can do. So three distinct sections. And so, Mark, if I can start with an opener for recruitment business owners who have already got that financial visibility and control that we were discussing with John in the last podcast, what are the general tax planning pieces that you think all recruitment business owners should have in place right now? Could we just start there?
2: Sure. I mean, usually the first question I get asked by recruitment business owners uh, who I meet is, is my remuneration as tax efficient as possible? Usually that constitutes taking a modest level of salary through your payroll. This year, it's £732 a month. And then taking the rest of your money, your remuneration as dividends. The vast majority of business owners usually have that in place already. If you don't, it may be because you're just starting up and you haven't got the profits yet to pay dividends. And if not, then you're probably just paying yourself a salary and you'd be looking at moving towards the dividend position as as your business gets itself into a sure footing. Once we moved away from from standard remuneration, then we tend to... Actually, just before you do move off that, Mark, can I ask you a question? So
1: two situations that I think have sort of bubbled up for a number of people that I know recently who are recruitment business owners. So number one is that when the market sort of collapsed and fell off a cliff in April, many of those businesses, business owners, who were paying themselves largely in dividends found that they were suddenly, because there was no, you know, help out scheme, furlough scheme for them, other than for that very low salary they paid themselves, suddenly found that they were earning a considerably less than their staff, even those staff who were furloughed. So are you still happy that this is the best, most efficient way for all recruitment business owners to take their reward?
2: Under normal circumstances, yeah, I mean, the, the recent situation is obviously in incredibly exceptional circumstances whereby, you know, businesses have found that they've, they've basically been completely shut down overnight. It's very difficult to plan for something like that. And I, I know that the vast majority of our clients have found it very difficult where, they, as you say, their, their staff have been earning more than they have through the furlough scheme because they haven't had the, the salaried remuneration to fall back on as we as we move away from you know the, the government support now which is due to end on the thirty first of October in full um, and we go back to a more normal landscape, then purely from a tax point of view it, it remains the most tax efficient way to pay yourself a, a small salary and the remainder is dividends so yeah I, I for me, it feels like that it's still the right thing to do
1: one of the reasons that that some of the people I know were a bit shocked by this scenario was because they have treated their dividends as salary. In other words, they have routinely drawn the same amount of dividend on a monthly basis and then maybe a little bit extra after they've finalised their accounts. Is there a is there a risk? What how frequently would you expect to see people drawing dividends in a, you know, a small recruitment business, let's say
2: sub 20 staff? Well, the way we deal with our clients is that we we are aware that a lot of people who run businesses perhaps have come from an employment background in the past and they're just used to receiving a, a regular monthly amount. And dividends, of course, are actually a distribution of profit, not really designed to be used as a salary. They, they're supposed to be a distribution of profits, perhaps declared twice a year uh, or quarterly. And so what we, we try to pr- uh, encourage our clients to do is to sit down with their financial information and actually declare their dividends in advance, usually on a quarterly basis. So they'll look at the quarterly management accounts, project forward what they're going to do in the business, understand what the profit levels are going to be based on those projections and, 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 and past results, and therefore decide on the level of appropriate dividends uh, and declare those. Once uh, they, they they can then draw them down from the director's loan account on a monthly basis so if you're a, you know if you want to take 10,000 pounds a month out of your business you can declare 40,000 pounds in advance and then and then draw down against it that that's the best way to approach these things and, and it then gets you away from the mindset of it actually being a salary and gets you more into a business owner mindset of of managing your financials on a more regular basis actually taking a, a holistic view of the business of where it's going doing wider financial planning alongside your your tax planning as well
1: yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point, because so many people have never mentally made that leap uh, until they were forced to by COVID, actually. Anyway, sorry. So just to part the paying dividends piece, I think you were going to go on and say something else about pensions?
2: Yeah. So once you've got your, your, your remuneration settled, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where there's then additional cash reserves in the business that you'd like to potentially draw out, but you don't necessarily need to to use them to spend immediately, we, we usually encourage clients to look at, at pension planning. An individual can put up to £40,000 a year into a pension. And where a company makes a pension contribution on behalf of a director or an employee, the company gets a corporation tax deduction, uh, where, of course, dividends being a deduction of post-tax profits, there's, there's no tap, corporation tax deduction for, for drawing dividends. So, Usually a, a good remuneration strategy should also encourage the use of, of pension contributions. and again, you need to sit down with your, your financial information to understand what level of pension contributions the company can make on your behalf. you know some people like to do a monthly amount, other people like to do you know sit down with their their annual accounts at the end of the year uh, and perhaps do more or a larger lump sum. but being able to to build that that pension nest egg for the future for retirement or for other investment vehicle opportunities is 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 hugely important
1: i know obviously as you'll be aware you know the recruitment industry is has quite a young age profile typically and i know business owners who have been really successful work very hard and and have got the money to invest in their pensions at the end of the year but it seems a very very long time to them to lock their money up so, and they, you know, they're, they're wondering whether they'll be able to get their hands on it if there is a turnaround, as there has been. And what's your advice to those people about locking their money up in a pension?
2: Well, I suppose I have to be very careful, first of all, not to give actual pensions advice because I'm not a regulated pensions advisor. But it's generally from a tax point of view, my advice is usually one that the tax, the corporation tax deduction is very attractive for, for transferring the money out of the company. So there is a short-term benefit in reducing your corporation tax bills. And the other is that pensions can be used for things other than just stock market investments, which can fluctuate up and down. And, and as you say, it can be quite um, unappealing to those who are quite young and, and see the age of 55 where they can first access the pensions as, as something that's a long way off in the future. For, for ambitious business owners who are perhaps looking to, to buy premises in the future, they can convert their pensions into a SIP or a SAS structure uh, and use that pension structure to buy a, a building, perhaps, office space in the future, that they, as they mm-hmm. grow, that they could move into that. If they were to use that opportunity, then potentially in the future, their pension could own, own the building. The, the the business would then be paying rent to their pension, creating a very tax-efficient structure whereby the business is, is funding even more money into their pension because the rents go directly to the pension. Uh, effectively, you are your own landlord albeit you, by way of your pension-owning the building that you occupy rather than uh, a third-party landlord.
1: Right, okay. So let me just make sure I've understood what you're saying, that if the pension is in a SIP, a self-invested pension plan, then it can be used long before the 50, age 55 cutoff to, for example, buy an asset like a building that then generates more income, yes? Yes. Okay. With And, and drawing that down to spend on, say – buying a building, does that then attract the tax that's been avoided by putting in the SIP?
2: Well, the SIP itself is the one that buys the building, so there's no drawdown Mm -hmm. of the pension. Ah, right. It's a separate corporate entity in its own right, so it it would buy the building. Yeah. And any growth in value of that building over time is tax-free because pensions don't pay capital gains tax. The only only real tax cost is, is the stamp duty of buying the building in the first place, which is something
1: yeah so it's an interesting one, isn't it? because we see commercial office buildings being emptied out at a massive scale- you know on a massive scale at the moment, and it's a little bit of a speculator's market at the moment, isn't it because nobody knows whether people are going to return to traditional ways of working, but I would imagine there's some there's going to be some bargains to be had in terms of
2: commercial office space I would imagine so yeah and it's it's going to be an interesting time to see whether people how do you want to run your business do you do you view the office space as a necessity or do you view it as a as a burden for those businesses that view it as a necessity then then it's going to become a buyer's market by the sounds of things uh, as we read in the press
1: how else can you use for example business funds via pension or not to buy assets that are more tax efficient
2: well companies can own assets themselves in terms of tax efficiency i suppose one thing that clients are often quite keen to understand the most tax-efficient ownership of his his cars. And if we go back maybe 10, 15 years, a company car was was almost a a must-have because it was just a no-brainer to have your car owned by the company and let the company pay all the bills, and a very small tax charge was incurred. Over the last number of years, successive governments have have tried to change that position, basically on the back of a green agenda, wanting to make it more environmentally uh, friendly, to own uh, things like electric cars, petrol cars have suddenly become very expensive from a tax point of view to have through the company. And it it almost went to the point where tax advisors are saying don't have a company car at all. More recently, with the green agenda and electric cars becoming more common, there's actually a, a great opportunity at the moment to 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 obtain an electric car through the company as a private vehicle. The company can obtain 100% deduction of the cost of the car if, it, if it's bought. And the, the tax charge for the director or employee using the car currently in the, in this income tax year is 0% for a fully electric brand new car uh, and next year is only 1% of the, the list price of the vehicle so very small tax charges so if there, if there are lump sums around or cash available for, for assets then then certainly a company car if it's fully electric could be something that's tax efficient to, to acquire
1: now I know that lots of our listeners are going to be very interested in this so let's get really specific here what I think you're saying is that if you are a company director and the company buys the car, you can knock off the entire cost of it against tax. Is that right?
2: Yes. In the year that it's bought. Yes.
1: Right. So in effect, you are, You can deduct the cost of that from your profits for corporation tax purposes.
2: Correct. Yes.
1: Right. And then the... The tax charge that you incur as an, the individual who is using that car is zero in the first year.
2: In this income tax year up to the 5th of April 2021, yes.
1: Right. So it's, a my word, I mean, that is a, almost a no-brainer, isn't it, for anyone who's happy with an electric car. And have many of your clients actually gone ahead and done this?
2: Yeah, I was going to say it is a no-brainer. A, a, no-bra- a number of our clients have, have gone down that route, yes. And, and it's interesting to see there's quite a wide variety of electric cars on the market now that, you know, Immediately, the one that springs to mind is usually Tesla because uh, they they're impressed so much. But companies like Jaguar have the I-Pace now. And there's all sorts of other options out there that uh, BMW have got a good one. Uh, and a number of our clients have, have, have got all sorts of vehicles now. And we generally get very good feedback from the driving experience they've had as well.
1: Right. OK. So the only drawback then is to actually... Make sure that you' learn to go plug your electric car in regularly. if you're not used to that, that's quite um difficult. But you can't do that for can you do that for employees?
2: Yeah, the same the same rules apply for employees as they do for directors it's it's across the board. right, okay. so
1: I think there'll probably be a number of our listeners keen to do that now. If I can just ask you to turn your attention to sadly those people running businesses that were heavily committed into one Market, um, and just because of the nature of this very specific virus, that market has disappeared. I mean, hospitality would be a, a classic example, and hospitality recruitment has, you know, through no fault of those business owners, has really taken a, a very, very heavy hit. Now, for those business owners who do find themselves in that position, while they are going around trying, wondering whether to bring their staff back. Um, and what markets to move into now. What are the tax areas you would advise them to tidy up and make sure we're most efficient straight away?
2: Sure. I mean, the first thing is to loop back to remuneration. Where people are taking dividends, which is, of course, a distribution of profits, they should be very close to their financials right now and making sure that they do have sufficient profits to continue to pay the dividends that they're likely to still want to take. If they don't have the sufficient profits and they continue to draw the money, one consequence, one negative consequence of that can be that they end up with what's called an an overdrawn director's loan account. Where where there aren't sufficient profits to to declare dividends, drawings are are posted in an accountant's world to what's called the director's loan account, which means the company has effectively lent the director money that Mm. fundamentally have to be paid back if, if there aren't profits in the future to declare a dividend to, to to cover these loans. Several negative tax consequences to that and, and wider commercial ones. If we get to the end of an accounting year and a director has an overdrawn director's loan account, there's what's called Section 455 tax, which causes a 32.5% corporation tax charge to be placed on the amount of the director's loan account that's overdrawn. And that tax charge has to be paid if the loan remains outstanding nine months and one day after the year end. So that's quite a, a costly tax charge. Now that tax charge can be can be returned to the company when the director's loan account is repaid. Obviously, very negative from a cash flow point of view to have to pay that at the worst possible time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if the loan account is overdrawn by more than ten thousand pounds, then there's a P11D benefiting kind if if on a, as a, an interest-free loan to the director. Those tax charges are relatively modest and obviously depend on the the level of the. Loan account, but still, again, a, a negative tax consequence that you, is good to avoid. And the wider commercial consequences, if, if of course, the business—you know—the worst would to happen to the business if it were to end up insolvent. An insolvency practitioner uh, is required to bring in all the debtors on the balance sheet whenever a company goes insolvent. And if a director's loan account is overdrawn, that is a debtor at an insolvency point of view, and an insolvency practitioner would have to call in that debt, which. Uh, you know could be catastrophic for the individual concerned if they don't have the cash to, to repay it
1: so I think there's an important lesson there isn't there that that if if you have treated dividends as a salary just stop doing that right now and start taking a more active look at the the p l before you draw down any uh, any more money from the business and in terms of things like seeking time to pay arrangements with hmRC and you know, furlough money, loans that have been taken. Any general points for recruitment business owners?
2: Well, I suppose general points. Uh, time to pay arrangements for any tax debts are easier to get at the moment with HMRC. They're being very lenient with all business owners at the moment. Usually, it would be very difficult to even get to 12 months on a time to pay arrangement, but they're openly discussing uh, two year time to pay arrangements with a couple of clients that we've been assisting in that area.
1: And in that case, obviously without naming names, what are the criteria that those companies have fulfilled to to get a, such a generous time to pay arrangement? What are the checks that HMRC has done on them that, that they've satisfied?
2: Well, the biggest check that we've come across to date has been that making sure that you've paid your PAYE and national insurance during any period of furlough claim. That seems to be a real three-line whip that HMRC have put out there, that if you've not been paying your PAYE whilst been claiming furlough money, because the PAYE is included in the furlough money that you're receiving, HMRC are realistic taking a dim view of that. So if you've, if you've been making your PAYE payments in full and on time whilst receiving the furlough money, then you're over the first hurdle. They then seem to be open to to discussion on, on your business case. They always take these on a case-by-case basis. So, if you've been adversely affected, and you can put forward a good business case, and you've got a good proposition for them, then at the moment they seem willing to listen to 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 what you've got to say.
1: So, could could you give us an example of a good business case in this context that perhaps some of our recruitment business um, listeners could can relate to? What kind of things do HMRC want to hear? about what's going to happen in the future
2: well they want to hear that they're going to get paid fundamentally so they want to hear that you're you're able to meet ongoing liabilities as well as being able to catch up the the debts that you've accrued over over whatever period that has been you know the justification the business case is is fairly straightforward we all know what's what's happened recently uh, but it, it's proving that you've you've got some financial forecasts that you've done that prove that you've got the cash flow ability to actually meet you, your ongoing commitments. If you do that, and HMRC are very comfortable with with things.
1: So, how how granular do HMRC get when you show them those forecasts? Because you know, a forecast could be just wish fulfillment, couldn't it? How how much checking are they going to do on that?
2: I mean, they're not going to go into you know they're not going into forensic accounting areas uh, with the vast majority of small business owners that we deal with. They're just looking for the fact that you've actually done some work to justify what you're saying to them. And that you've justified, you know, you've not just plucked a number out of the air and, and, and tried to get away with it, if you like. You've done some work to to work out exactly how things are going to go forwards. And you can prove that you've, you've got some justification to the proposition you're making for them. Then they, they're generally in a position that they want to work with you on that.
1: Okay. So let's imagine then that I am a recruitment business owner. And the majority of my business in the past has been in the oh, retail and hospitality placements and so my time to pay case is based on uh, my my assessment that my clients are going to start returning to, and recruiting uh, to you know from september onwards um, and i've put some sales forecast figures in based on that i mean are are they is hmrc going to ask me for you know, for details of my of my client contacts or how I've made that estimate, or are they just going to take that based on my industry
2: expertise? No, they'd rarely ask for justification. Of the level we operate, certainly, they're usually more than happy to to receive. I mean, effectively, time to pay arrangements where we've got into that level, usually a spreadsheet forecast that we send them with the financials on for their purposes. They would re- they I've never been asked to re- to justify the you know names of customers underneath or anything of that nature.
1: Right. And in terms of what we were talking about earlier, directors' dividends, if they were looking at giving you time to pay based on future you know, forecasts, what, what view would HMRC take of a business where the director had not taken, you know, was still expecting to draw the same out in dividends as they did pre-COVID, in your
2: view? I mean, HMRC would normally expect you to have exhausted all avenues of other finance before you approach them for a time-to-pay arrangement. They don't, however, expect you to bankrupt yourself. So they understand that as a business owner, you've got to earn a living. As long as your remuneration, if that's taken as a salary and dividends, is commensurate with what it would normally be, they don't seem to take great exception to that.
1: There are going to be businesses that obviously end up with um a loss, a, a, you know, a net loss at the end of their financial year. And what what position does that put them in with regard to corporation tax? And are there any ways of mitigating that, that problem?
2: Yeah, so if a company makes a loss for corporation tax purposes at the end of its accounting year, the best thing it can do uh, from a cash flow point of view is carry that back to the previous 12-month accounting period and offset that against the profits presumably made in the previous year. And where there are profits that the loss can be offset against, you can claim a corporation tax rebate. At the moment, HMRC are prioritizing uh, corporation tax refunds to try and get them out to business owners as quickly as possible. And so if you find yourself in that position, the best thing to do is get your accounts and corporation tax return completed as quickly as possible and get the corporation tax return filed with the claim to carry the loss back to the previous year to get that refund into the bank account as quickly as possible.
1: Right. So specifically, then, if my last tax year, this is hypothetical, but if my last tax year ended December 19, and I made, I know, 300k net profit, and so I wouldn't actually have paid my corporation tax on that yet, or maybe a little bit on account. But this, you know, we get to the end of this year, and I've made a loss, then I basically Put the loss back into 2019. That's what
2: you're saying, and get a rebate on that tax. Yes, effectively, yeah. Obviously, if you haven't yet paid it, then it may it may just mean that you don't have to pay that 2019 tax, or you pay a reduced amount. But if you have have paid your 2019 tax, then yes, you get a rebate from it.
1: Okay, great. Right. Well, that will give some people some relief, um, but there are. A number of, I'm delighted to say, a number of recruitment businesses, obvious sectors would be healthcare and energy, where the recruiters have been absolutely flying. And if, if anything, have seen an upturn in demand for their services. There are others who've got the reserves that they're now able to look into diversifying into new markets. And for some, you know, this will be OK, I've come through that OK, but I feel now is the time I want to exit the industry. So things that we haven't covered so far that from a tax point of view, those those businesses should be thinking about now, I guess would include things like EMI schemes. Can you tell us about those? And because there's a, I have to say there's a lot of misinformation about EMI schemes out there. For example, I met with a new client um, fairly recently who had been told that if they were to start an EMI scheme, then every member of staff that they had, and bear in mind this was a six-month-old business, would have to have an equal share in their business. I don't know who had told them that, but it's probably worth us taking a minute or two just for you to outline what an EMI scheme is and how it can work for a business that's trading well at the moment.
2: Sure, well I suppose the fundamental underlying reason to do any an e m i scheme is a share option scheme, so if you've got senior members of staff or team members who you want to really keep hold of and you you know pay is not necessarily the way to go, then if you want to try and give them equity in your limited company, then setting up a share scheme is usually the way to do it because you can't just gift shares to an employee without an income tax charge arising on them or based on the value of the shares. And if you're a highly profitable, well-established company, that income tax charge could be quite significant. The employee's receiving shares, so they're not actually receiving any anything physical money. And so an income tax charge will be rather unwelcome because they haven't got anything with which extra with which to pay it. The general way to avoid such an income tax charge arising is to use one of the several available share option schemes, as they're called. Now, tax and tax schemes have generally had quite a lot of bad press over the past few years with what are generally known as abusive tax schemes, where people have tried to avoid tax with tax schemes that have been created by very clever individuals who try to manipulate the law. A share option scheme is, is not to be confused with that sort of tax planning. A share option scheme is Is written into tax law. It's something that the government has effectively said that you're allowed to do by by saying if you follow the rules that we've written in the tax law, then we we will help you with lower tax bills. EMI, the one that you've mentioned, uh, an enterprise management investment scheme, is is one of the more popular ones because it allows effectively a company owner to grant share options to these senior members of staff. So you're making them kind of halfway house equity partners because They're not full shareholders yet. They can't receive dividends. They can't vote, but they've got an option to buy these shares in the future. They're sometimes known as growth shares because you tie the value of the share options into the current value of the company uh, with a view to the the employees being able to uh, exercise these share options at some point in the future. That point in the future is usually determined by the business owners around a set of objectives. It might be a certain level of business performance, based on profitability or turnover, or a combination of the two, it might be tied to an exit strategy, perhaps in five years' time, or indeed simply an exit. I.e. When we find a buyer, you'll be able to exercise your options and benefit from that that exit. The incentive for the employee is that it's massively in their interest to grow the business because they get the option. Perhaps your company is valued at at five pounds a share now, and so they they're given they're granted the option. Uh, over these shares at 5 pounds if they grow the business and then they, they exercise the option in the future when the company's perhaps worth 20 pounds a share they still only pay 5 pounds a share so they get what well, you know that massive discount but they've worked towards building that growth the tax advantage is that being granted the share option doesn't incur an income tax charge and indeed when they when they come to exercise the share option obviously they have to pay for the share so again there's no income tax charge on that it may be that they can't necessarily afford to exercise the share option and that's usually where you're looking at, at structuring things around a potential exit i you just want people to to benefit when the company is sold and that the the, proce- the the exercise price can be can be rolled up and deducted from the proceeds that they get from the the business sale
1: yeah just a thought on that i meet a lot of recruiters who start up a business and understandably they do so with the highest of intentions and they want to run something that that generously re- rewards their employees it, often in a way that they didn't feel they'd been rewarded when they were an employee and one of the issues that they quite frequently run into is they from the best of motives they give away through share options very large proportions of their business to people who are with them at the beginning and people come go some people reach the limits of their capability or or indeed motivation and they've you know a new new staff need to come in but at this point the owner's got no more equity or options to give so obviously they they can hit a problem there in terms of bringing new people in it is of course possible to to bring people into a scheme on different conditions later on isn't it
2: yeah i mean if you if you're going to to go into a share option scheme it's something we always try to have fairly lengthy discussions with our clients about because it's not something to be done lightly i've come across an, many clients you know similar to to what you said in the past almost overly enthusiastically dishing out equity in the early days to then fairly heavily regret it in the future because they look back and and just sort of think, what was I what was I thinking? You know, it's very important to have a much wider commercial view of of what you're doing, what you're planning, you know, there needs to be a real plan around why you are giving people equity in your business and what you want to achieve from doing that. If you if you want your entire workforce to benefit from a share scheme, then EMI is not for you. There's other share schemes out there that, that can work for you and 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 would be much more applicable. If you've got a few elite members of staff that you want effectively to either perhaps do a management buyout in the future or, or join you at the at the top table if you like, or or help really put the foot on the accelerator to some sort of exit, uh, you know, you're looking to get bought out by a bigger competitor in the market, then EMI is really going to help you deliver that by incentivizing your staff. So I think sometimes we get approached by clients who say, I want to do an EMI scheme. And it's because they've heard the name, not really because they've got a reason for doing it. Usually, it, it, we kind of almost have a back to basics conversation with people who say, I, I want to do an EMI scheme, just to really get an understanding of what they want to achieve with it and to make sure that it's right for them. And if, if it's not right, we generally try and point them in the direction of something more applicable to them.
1: Right, okay. So let's let's move on and talk about something that's, that's just beginning to sort of bubble through in the recruitment industry, which is research and development tax credits. Uh, so the majority of our listeners won't have heard of these and won't know how they work. Can you just give us an outline,
2: please? Sure. I mean, in tax these days, there's very few magic ones that you can wave to, re- to remove a, co- a corporation tax bill or an even income tax bill. Research and development tax credits or tax relief is kind of the last bastion of of legal tax reduction that it makes a significant change to your tax bills. Any expenditure that qualifies for research and development tax relief is uplifted by 230%. So it's a significant change to your tax bill. Now, when you talk about research and development, the image that usually springs to mind is individuals in, in white lab coats Scientific experiments, probably trying to find uh, an antidote to COVID nineteen at the moment. But that's you know that's a very small part of what the research and development tax relief system is about. It, it applies to any step change in uh, technology or technological processes. Now, recruitment consultants are probably thinking that's still not going to apply to my business because I don't you know I don't deal in technology. Where we have applied it to businesses of that nature is usually around internal systems. So if you've got perhaps a CRM-based system that you use to manage your business and for some reason it doesn't work for you, it doesn't quite do what you want it to do, and you get your IT team or your external IT consultants in and you spend some money having your system development worked on, then you can potentially fall into the R&D regime. An example we've done an R&D claim for in our client base, was a client who generates leads via their website uh, or various sites. And they had a, an off-the-shelf uh, CRM system uh, called Salesforce, which I imagine people are probably quite familiar with. And Salesforce did probably, I don't know, 20% of what they actually wanted it to do. And they've invested several hundred thousand pounds over a number of years in developing Salesforce, making it very bespoke to their needs, having very unique aspects of of technology added into it, creating new systemization and functionality within the system so that it worked in a very bespoke way for their business. All of that development work that they did has qualified for R&D relief and has saved them a couple of hundred thousand pounds, actually. they've They've saved a huge amount of tax by having to invest in this technology to to take their business forwards.
1: Right. And what's the threshold of evidence that HMRC would want to see
2: for that? Well, the the process of of making an R&D claim is that you do it on your corporation tax return. There's a couple of boxes you fill in in the corporation tax return, but the real body of evidence that you send is that a report is written that outlines the work that's been done for HMRC so that their inspectors can understand what it is that you've been working on in your business and why you think that the r&d relief regime applies to you as a business we we prepare these reports for our clients they're typically quite long reports they justify you know the technological advance the uncertainties that you've had to go through and and all the steps that you've had to work your way through often when we're doing an it-based system there'll be iterations of code testing user interface acceptance testing you know things going between developers and uh and office staff to get the functionality right in areas that they're you know where they're really stretching the boundaries of, of the systems that they're working on you just need to write the the report up to to let HMRC understand in the, the broadest possible terms what, what it is that you've been doing
1: right okay so so just to be clear then it's it's something that needs to have a like there's an output there's actual a measurable output and a process that you followed to get there, it's not a question of saying, for example, because there will be some listeners who are thinking maybe I could take advantage of this by saying that all my telephone calls have been research, but you're talking about there has to be some some product or something tangible
2: that is developed as a result of that. It has to be new knowledge as well. It can't be something – often one of the client questions I get asked often is, you know, I've got to go on a training course – can I? Can that qualify for research and development? The acquisition of existing knowledge is not research and development for tax relief purposes. It might be for your and your business, and that's fine. That's great that you're that you're learning more and, and expanding your knowledge base. But unfortunately, for tax relief purposes, it's not. There's got there's got to be a step change in your industry in, in what you're doing. Nobody else is doing it. That's the best way I can put it. Really.
1: Okay. So I think that's uh, that's an interesting one, for, not just from a tax point of view, but to be honest for a lot of recruitment businesses who have been doing the same old, you know, got any jobs, maybe need to have a good hard look at at how they can actually develop their proposition using technology or perhaps some of the, something that we haven't thought of yet. So just before we wrap up then, anything else that you think, uh, I know in our earlier conversation, we touched on SEIS and so forth very quickly. Just any notes that, Relevant for someone who's heard of this and may be interested.
2: Yeah, so well, enterprise investment scheme or seed enterprise investment scheme—the two reliefs available for investors in a business. If you're looking, right, if you if you're one of the individuals who falls within the successful aspect of of our conversation, and you've got money that you're looking perhaps to invest in a, in a new startup business somewhere, the schemes would allow you to get tax relief on the investment for seed enterprise investment scheme. Up to fifty percent tax relief on the amount you invest in the in the company shares that you're buying into for enterprise investment scheme thirty percent of the tax uh, sorry thirty percent of the amount you invest is comes as a tax relief subject to certain limits. On the flip side, if you're looking to start a business, uh, start a new venture, and you're looking to attract investors, it's a really good idea that to to see if you qualify for these schemes as a as a company and to register. For pre-approval with HMRC, once you've got that pre-approval, investors are far more interested in investing in your business knowing that they can get this tax relief and knowing that you've done the research to, to make sure that they they will be able to obtain it.
1: Okay, so just to be clear, if 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 I were setting up a brand new recruitment business now, I can't I can't make seed investment in my own business. It has to be from some, an external source, correct?
2: Correct. There's there's a number there's numerous uh, restrictions on on the various investments that can be made. But one of them is that if you are making an investment and want to claim this relief, the maximum shareholding you can have is 30%.
1: Right.
2: So the claimer who is the investor can only
1: own 30%. Right. Thank you. Okay. And you mentioned about pre-registering for approval. So how onerous is that process?
2: It's a process that needs to be undertaken by a tax specialist. It's it's, it's a fairly bureaucratic form-filling exercise with You need to send uh, business plans and uh, prospectus and things like that. Uh, The application process, it's not one of the worst processes that you've got to go through with HMRC. Indeed, I I actually did one for a a company in the recruitment industry a week before I went on holiday. And HMRC responded astoundingly within uh, 48 hours with an approval. My word. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Must have been a very good submission, Mark, is all I can say. (laughs) Okay, but definitely engage a tax specialist for that. Okay, that's fascinating. Now, um, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but that has been very interesting in terms of very specific steps that people can take, some of which many of our listeners won't have considered before. So if they want to take the conversation about tax further with you, Mark, how do they contact you?
2: Well, if they want to visit our website, we are ascentisllp.co.uk or, or they can email me. I am mark.overend at ascentislp.co.uk.
1: Okay, thank you. And Ascentis, as I mentioned at the beginning, Mark's the tax partner, but obviously it's a full service firm. So I've been Alison Humphries. This has been the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. And if you are taking a look at refreshing your business, renewing it, entering new markets, there's tax is one element of all the professional advice that you will need. So again, do contact me. That's alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today and um, keep on running. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about Recruitment Leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.